0: And welcome to the Literacy Teacher's Life, a podcast for teachers and parents that gives ideas about how to help our children learn to love reading, writing, and all things literacy. I'm your host, Elizabeth Morfus, a literacy professor and a mom to two elementary-aged girls. Here, we'll talk about thoughtful, creative, and realistic ways to navigate literacy learning so that your children will feel supported and seen in their reading and writing. Now, let's get this conversation started. Welcome to the Literacy Teacher's Life podcast. This is the podcast for ideas, tips, and strategies to help elementary children thrive with literacy. It's the podcast to support elementary-aged kids with reading and writing so that they see themselves as readers and writers. Welcome back. This is episode 34, and it is airing at the end of January. We're gearing up for February and Valentine's Day soon. So I'm back this week with another wonderful guest. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Karen Gazit. She is a professor at McGill University in Montreal, Canada, and Karen has recently published another book. It's called The Power of Effective Reading Instruction. How Neuroscience Informs Instruction Across All Grades and Disciplines. During our conversation, Karen talks about her experience working in schools, and it's really evident that she has spent a considerable amount of time working with teachers and kids because the book is so practical, and it's full of many strategies. We're so lucky that she shares many of them with us today on the podcast. So without much else, I'm going to get right to our conversation. All right. Welcome, Karen. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking with me today.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Can you begin by introducing yourself and sharing your background with listeners?
1: Sure. So my name is Dr. Karen Gazit. And for decades, as long as I can remember, and since I started my career, I've had a fascination with literacy. I did an undergraduate degree in psychology and then moved on to a master's and a PhD in ed psych and counseling. And the focus was for me really on how to ensure that the students who struggle the most get the support that they needed. I sort of saw from the beginning, saw the entire world from the vantage point of the student who struggles the most. And how do we create classrooms for those students? So I've been teaching at university in Montreal, at McGill University for many, many, many years, but have also worked in schools at the same time. So I've always worked while I was studying and while I was teaching. And I think those two components have been extremely helpful, the university and working with students, with teachers, really gave me this holistic way to understand kids and support teachers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Before we get into the book, can you talk a little bit about your new book? Just come out?
1: Yeah, sure. So I teach, uh, I teach a graduate course in reading, mm-hmm. and uh, also do a whole bunch of workshops on literacy on the Big Five. And what struck me, two things struck me, each time I present or at the beginning of each class, and that is the students or the teachers saying, why has nobody ever taught me this? why don't Mm -hmm. I know that the big five exists? Why haven't I ever heard about evidence-based teaching? Why haven't I heard about the problems with balanced literacy, whole language? And just, you know, sort of kept that in mind and, you know, was struggling to find a book, a text that I can use that would encapsulate everything that I really thought Mm -hmm teachers in my workshops and students in my classes really need to know. So I figured, you know, let me create it. Right. And, uh, and, and there are wonderful books out there. And I used components of, of many of them and still have readings from many great books that, that are out there, but really wanted to create a book on literacy that gave the foundation, what's going on for these kids that are struggling yeah. and how do, how do, you know, how does everyone learn how to read? And then, what goes wrong and to keep it very, very practical. Yeah.
0: And I'll also add in that it's for grades K through 12, which I thought was great.
1: Yeah. Well, grade level. Yeah. And I should say at one point I was thinking as I was writing the book, you know, the the title that came to mind was no teacher was off the hook, which is not the title of the book, (laughs) but the idea that every single educator is a reading teacher, everybody. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So we'll get right into the book. And you begin by discussing the neuroscience of reading. So, can you talk a bit about what neuroscience says about how students learn to read? And then, how does this translate into instruction in the classroom?
1: Sure. So, to be very brief, because obviously, <laughs> you know, th- this could be a lecture in and of itself, but very young kids, you know, for very young kids before they enter into the path of reading, there are really two separate networks. One is a visual network and one is a language network. And the to become a proficient reader, those really have to sync up and children eventually become adults who have gone through these critical phases and are now proficient readers. And then neuroscience indicates what goes on. And for very, very young readers, there is, and, and for individuals learning how to read, there's great emphasis on the left hemisphere and specifically regions of the left hemisphere are responsible for reading the parietal temporal lobe of the left hemisphere. And in order to read, young kids who initially have that strong visual sense and language sense become consolidated primarily with emphasis in the left hemisphere, where they learn that every sound that they hear in language has this letter or graphing component to it. Mm -hmm. So the ultimate goal is, again, we have to analyze, we have to be able to hear that language is broken up into parts. We have Mm -hmm. to hear that words are broken into these individual particles that are called Mm -hmm. phonemes. And then we have to be able to map each phoneme onto the letter or the grapheme sound that it represents. And it's this ability to decode that happens in the left hemisphere and that parietal temporal lobe of the left hemisphere. And then eventually, as we become provisioned readers, it goes to this word form center where we are no longer actually decoding. And therefore all of our energy is going towards the ability to enjoy reading, learn from reading without that belabored process. The reason why I find it critical for teachers to understand the neuroscience of reading is there's been a significant research showing that students who struggle to read are really struggling at that ability to map the letter onto this. At first, breaking that word into its component phonemes. So really having difficulty hearing that dog is made up of three sounds and then mapping those sounds onto the phonemes. And that, as I said, needs to happen in the primarily in the parietal temporal lobe of the left hemisphere. And what we find is those who struggle to read, number one, it's not an IQ issue. As a matter of fact, poor readers, many of them have very high IQs. It's not mm-hmm. that they can't read, it's that their brains are doing something different when they're looking at the word. So rather than breaking it into parts, What you see when you do a functional magnetic resonance imaging, so you're looking at the oxygenated blood going to the brain, what you tend to find is that they're reading using the right hemisphere, which means that they're looking at the word as though it's a whole word. Mm -hmm. They're not breaking it into its component parts. We must make sure that our kids are decoding. There is only one way to read. So knowing this, I believe, really helps teachers instruct from a phonemic awareness decoding perspective again according to the big five and really move away from looking at the word as though it's a picture because many 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 teachers will say you know i teach them the visual sight words as we know it or i teach them the visual and i've seen practice like that Mm -hmm. and it's important that teachers understand that there really is only one pathway. There's one highway to reading. There isn't four highways. There's one highway. Unfortunately, for kids who struggle to read, there's all kinds of barriers and obstacles. And there are wonderful ways to break down those barriers so that those kids can take that highway to proficient reading. Absolutely.
0: No, That's really well said. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about dyslexia, and you address this in the book. So the term dyslexia, or its new term, specific learning disability in the area of reading, has been used very frequently lately. Can you start by explaining the term dyslexia? And in order to make this as concrete as possible, what would tip off a teacher that a student might be dyslexic?
1: Yeah. I absolutely love that question because I am such a strong believer that if teachers know more about what dyslexia looks like, they will know what to look for. So one of the most for young Mm kids, young kids have to be able to rhyme. So if a three-year-old doesn't laugh when you read a rhyming book, That's a good, strong indication, not that the child has dyslexia, Mm -hmm. because quite frankly, the label isn't what's important. It's the intervention when you realize that there are struggles. So, you know, it would say that a student is at risk if they couldn't at first just identify that this word rhymes because it shows their knowledge of how words and language is manipulated. And then they have to be able to generate rhymes. So if a young child, four years old, couldn't Mm -hmm. generate a rhyme, then you would say, okay, this ch- I need to dig deeper. But the other thing that is extremely important is every child should be assessed early on using universal screening, but the most important assessment is to give them nonsense words when they're in grade one. So if you want to know if a child is actually decoding, because I mentioned that it is so easy for kids who can't read to visually memorize the word, We think that they're reading, but they're not. So really, if every child was assessed using a full assessment, I believe strongly in it. But if you give them a nonsense word and they say, which I've had that experience many times, where a student looks at me and says, well, I can't read this. I've never seen the word before. That's an indication that the child is, in fact, not decoding the word. So you look at the, or the rhyming, you look to see if they can hear each phoneme in a word. If you give them the word dog and you say how many sounds and they tell you one dog, that is a strong indication. And then once they, you know, they are in grade one and they are expected to be able to read those simple consonant, vowel, consonant words, and you give them words that they've never seen before and they're actually not reading them. That's another very, very strong indication.
0: And these are so concrete. I love that. I love the rhyming example. It's so just really straightforward and, and easy to, to assess then.
1: Right. And we don't need to label. We just say, right. oh, this is not looking right. Let me dig deeper. Exactly. Exactly. Generally, what age or grade level do you think this should be addressed?
0: So many teachers have said that kids were not being identified with as dyslexic until grade five here in the United States. What do you think about
1: that? So I think it's essential that we separate the label from the specific skills and sub-skills that students have to master. So we can identify through universal screening, curriculum-based measures that students are not reaching their foundational skills towards Mm -hmm. becoming proficient readers. For that, you don't need a label. We don't need to have a label in order to intervene. I am a very huge component of early assessments in reading. You can right. start when they're four years old in terms of just the, the language pieces, but there are very specific curriculum-based measures that you can use to assess children make to make sure that they have those foundational skills. It is extremely problematic when we wait, because yeah. there's just so much research that indicates that what you can accomplish when they're five is going to be fourfold when they're in grade three. And the other thing is, if they're not reading by the end of grade two right. or three, depending on on the research, but certainly by the end of grade three, there's a minimum of very, very strong chance that they will not become proficient readers, not because they can't, because they absolutely can learn how to read in grade three, four, five, or six, but reading instruction has ended. So it's so unfortunate. And then we start using all of these other means to bypass their struggles, which we're writing them off in that sense, which is so sad because they can become proficient readers at any age. So- A very strong advocate that we assess using these curriculum-based measures when they're in formal school. Let's say in you know right at the beginning of kindergarten, and again you can do it before that as well. Identify their early phonemic Mm -hmm. awareness skills, so we may see that they're at risk before they even realize that they're not able to do something because formal teaching hasn't yet begun. So we should do it immediately, like right at the beginning of kindergarten to assess. And then if we see that they're having difficulty, let's say, breaking a word into its phonemes, the intervention, the support has to happen immediately. So we should not wait for a label. We could intervene because we see that they're missing some of their critical foundational skills, even though we don't have a label for that child. So there's lots of evidence against waiting doing those curriculum-based assessments and intervening immediately. Immediately, yeah. That's such good advice. Thank you. We're gonna talk about, you mentioned the big
0: five already and you addressed the big five of literacy as phonemic awareness, phonics, vocabulary, fluency, and comprehension, all of which are essential areas of reading development. And what I loved so much as I was reading your book is the strategies that you included to support each of these areas. All of the strategies you included are supported by research and they connect to the neuroscience research. So can we talk a little bit about some strategies you identified for the big five?
1: Absolutely.
0: Awesome. So let's start with phonemic awareness. What is something that teachers can include in their instruction? to
1: support phonemic awareness. So I'll I'll share sort of two quick strategies. Mm-hmm. I actually listened to some of your other podcasts. Yeah. One of them I think was with Dr. Lindsay, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, and Julia Lindsay shared yeah. amazing strategies as well. So phonemic awareness as we said is a student's ability to break a word into its particles mm-hmm. or individual sounds. Elkonin boxes are are wonderful. So you are not looking at or decoding the word. You are only hearing the word, which is what phonemic awareness assesses initially. So we, we give the child a number of boxes and then we give them poker chips and we present the word and we ask them to put down a poker chip for each sound that they hear in the word using colored blocks helps, very, very helpful. So for each sound, you're actually giving them some physical representation through these Elkonin boxes. So one chip for every sound that they hear. And this repeated many, many times is extremely helpful. Another great way to help them with phonemic awareness, one other strategy is to present them with three random sounds. So it could be a clap, a snap, and a tambourine. Oh, I like that. And... We ask them to give tell us back what sounds that they hear. So we would do clap, snap, tambourine shaking. And they would say, I heard a clap, I heard a snap, I heard a tambourine. Then we map the phonemes onto Mm -hmm. those sounds. So with the clap would go, duh, ah, guh. So that we're really teaching them in actuality phonemes or sounds like these other sounds. So we're getting them to hear mm-hmm. and these individual sounds by mapping them onto these other more familiar sounds.
0: Right. Oh, I like those. Those are very, very
1: hands-on.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So that's so for phonemic awareness.
0: And how about phonics? What is a strategy that you've found to be most effective with phonics?
1: The phonics strategy is, and again, I heard this, which is wonderful in the other podcast. So it's great to have different people saying the same right. thing. <laughs> Number one, there's a, a pattern of sounds that we teach. Mm-hmm. So we want to teach constant sounds. So for example, f and s is a consistent sound, but is not. So we want to start with those consistent sounds they're easier to teach so there is an actual structure like one one you know the first list of phonemes you would teach would be for example the f which is Mm -hmm. the constant sound the m which is a constant sound you've got to teach a vowel right a because in many words and then we're going to teach the t even though it's not consistent because it's found in many words right So we have the pattern that we teach. You want to teach those four at the same time so students can immediately start to form words with them. And as soon as they're able to form a word like fat or mat, you want Mm -hmm. to say to the student, you are now a reader. But and that because well, you want that them to identity. Oh so my gosh, I love it. how you do that they right say, away. You got yeah. it. Matt, you are a reader. I want to tell you, you broke the code. This is what readers do. You got it. Yay. You know, this is what it. I, yeah. Now we're going to expand because I really want all kids to start to see themselves as readers, especially yeah. those who are struggling. But the very important piece to phonics is many kids who have difficulty remembering the sounds of the letters have poor what's called naming speed. Yeah, They have difficulty remembering what things are called. So if I show you this and I say, you know, I'm testing, Elizabeth, I'm testing your <laughs> name speed and I say, what is this called? You're going to tell me a pen, pen. a phone, right? A cup. Tough. Kids who have poor naming speed mm-hmm. and many kids with dyslexia have poor naming speed they have difficulty remembering names of things they'll call this a thing they'll call a pen a thing but they will also have difficulty remembering the names or the sounds of the letters that's part of yeah. that poor naming speed right i have found yeah. something like itchy's alphabet lively letters jolly phonics there's many mm-hmm. programs like that mm-hmm. but what the programs do such as itchy's alphabet you're teaching them the f sound So you would tell them a story about your hat that has all kinds of feathers (laughs) so that they have this image in their mind because we know that kids with dyslexia tend to be extremely visual Mm -hmm. in their thinking. You tell them a story about your favorite hat that has feathers and then you show them the F sound with an overlay of a feather. So we know that because they have difficulty with poor naming speed, if I show them the F and I could show it to them 25 times, if their naming speed is poor, it's going to be hard for them to quickly access the sound, which is more important than the name. So now what's going to happen is I'm going to present it to them. The first thing they're going to think about is my funky feathered hat. (laughs) they're going to think of the F in the overlay. They're going to think of a feather because that's the image. And the feather is going to bring them to the sound F. So I have found it, alphabet is one example, but again, lively letters, there are other programs that do the same thing, but critical for kids to learn phonics, especially those, this is great for all kids, but very helpful for kids who have poor naming speed as a component of of their difficulty reading. Right. And I
0: love the strategy. Tell them right away that they're reading. I think that is such a great advice for teachers. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. All right. Well, go to vocabulary. And personally, I really loved your strategy of the word bag game. Would you mind talking about that strategy?
1: I thought that was great. Sure, sure. So vocabulary, so we know that there's a trajectory, you have to learn phonemes before you learn to decode or phonics. Vocabulary happens the minute the infant is born. (laughs) <laughs> so we are we are working yeah. on vocabulary all the time and we should be constantly building a child's yeah. vocabulary. We shouldn't wait until they're able to read that word to teach them what that word means. Right. Then uh, I'm going to get to word bank, but you, it, it has to be explicit and you have yeah. to hear and use a word 16, one, six times. So if we're going to actually teach words, we have to use the word, give them opportunities to use the word, like use it in yeah. many, many, many different contexts. And part of the word bag is to give them many opportunities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're we're using sophisticated vocabulary, which we should be doing with right. kids, even though, you know, we're not talking about their ability to read these words. They have to be able to use them so that when they are able to read them, they know what they mean mm-hmm. and they they understand them in the different formats. So every time they learn a new word, we would put that word in a bag. And every day we would have another student take out that word. And again, yeah. if we're asking them to read it, they would have had to learn how to read it. We don't want kids guessing right. and visually right. memorize words. But when we play that, that word bag game, they've already learned how to read the word. Every mm-hmm. time we learn a new word, it goes into this word bank. And then what happens is every day I would ask a different student or a couple of students to take a word out. And they would have to put that word in a sentence, say what it is, say what it isn't, talk about how it's used and, you know, give many, many different examples of that use of the word. And then at the end of the lesson, I would say to students, now it's your turn. What words from today's lesson do we need to add to that word bag?"
0: Right. I think that's such a great strategy. And it's as really practical and easy to implement into instruction.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: That's what I love about your strategies. They are very they're accessible and not challenging to implement. Thank you. All right. So what strategy have you found increases fluency?
1: Right. So Again, love this, so <laughs> fluency, as has often been said, is the bridge between decoding and comprehension. so in order to really benefit from reading and to fully understand what you're reading, it's critical that you read the you read quickly if you're struggling yeah. to read the word, all of your focus is going on decoding and not on the meaning of the word. You have to read it quickly, you have to read it without error, and you have to read it with the proper prosody or cadence mm-hmm. or rhythm. Okay the best strategy that I have found, the student has to be decoding, at least the words that were working on fluency. So they've learned to decode enough that they're able to read this passage, and they're not visually memorizing the words, they've decoded the words. But their reading is belabored. So as they read, you can hear, you can feel that they're still doing the decoding, which... Is in order to become a proficient reader, we have to, we no longer decode in right. essence once we become proficient. So we want to get them to that point. The best strategy is to give them a text that is just at their level of proficiency. Mm-hmm. So they, we can't have a text for the entire class because we know that students are going to be at different levels of, of reading proficiency. Mm-hmm. That's just the nature of every single classroom. So, you know, through an assessment, we want to make sure that we're giving students the proper grade level text to practice their fluency. In other words, they're able to decode these words. Now we're going to move them over that hump where they're now reading fluently. Mm -hmm. And we give them a text that is at their level of proficiency. And you have to read out loud in order to improve your fluency. Mm -hmm. We have them read that same passage out loud five times each time for 60 seconds. It is an outstanding, simple strategy. We can pair students. I read to you, you read to me. We could be reading different texts. What's critical is it's out loud. I read a text Mm -hmm. for 60 seconds, but then I have to read the same text again five times. So we don't go back and forth. I read it 60 seconds, go back to the beginning, read it again. And I should be doing that on average, about five times a day. The whole thing could take 10 to 15 minutes, mm-hmm. but you will see that students' fluency levels, they will read more words mm-hmm. per minute every single week. Right. And that you're moving them over that critical hump from decoding to that place where they're no longer putting so much emphasis. But you have to have mastered decoding. If not, then right. we're emphasizing visual memory, which we don't want to do we don't want to do.
0: Right. No, that's great. And it's not, again, not challenging to implement into the class, into instruction. That's great. Right. And then the final piece of the big five is comprehension. So you address the role of background knowledge very nicely. Can you speak a little bit more about why background knowledge
1: is so important for comprehension? Sure. So Another thing that you know I I often say, and I I think it's important for teachers to be aware of, is rhyming is to phonemic awareness and decoding. What background knowledge is to comprehension. Mm -hmm. So the most essential early indicator of how well a student will be able to develop phonemic awareness and eventually decode is what background knowledge is to comprehension. So when Mm -hmm. I'm reading, if I'm a parent reading with my young child. You know, if my child says to me, oh, that reminds me of when we went to the zoo, that is a very powerful indicator that the student will be a good comprehender, which means that they will make meaning of text. Again, we have to have the reading piece also. They have to be reading fluently, Mm -hmm. but comprehension is understanding of text. So if that child says, oh, this reminds me of... That's very powerful because they are bringing themselves to the text. They are making meaning of (laughs) what they're reading. They're saying, I had this experience. I am part of this text. I'm there. Very powerful. So powerful. I'm there. I'm part of the text, right? I mean, I'm experiencing this with Mm. everyone. They can't see me, but I'm right there. In other words, I've had these experiences. I'm bringing myself to the text so background knowledge and that connection to what you're reading is essential.
0: Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's and you're explaining how this can start this starts at home when parents are reading right. with kids and this is why the read aloud is so important especially in those younger grades for the teacher to build more background knowledge while reading. Absolutely.
1: And we can As parents, right? Even before formal education begins, what does this make you think of? Oh, we went to the zoo. Do you remember when we saw the bear? Like, we should be doing this constantly, right, with our kids?
0: Absolutely, I love that. So, can you talk a little bit about what middle and high school teachers, in particular, can do to support readers, especially in the content areas? And I. I hear from students who are middle and high school teachers more and more that the kids are struggling with reading and they have to teach reading. And as you said at the beginning, all teachers are reading teachers. Is there something specific that teachers at those grade levels can do?
1: Yeah, this is such an important question. Many of the teachers that I work with will tell me, I hear I'm teaching grade five. For some reason, grade five seems to come up a lot. (laughs) How is it that these kids got to grade five? They cannot read. They actually can't decode. So again, love the question because every child deserves, I believe it's a human right. Every Mm -hmm. child really deserves to be able to read. And as educators, we need to figure out now, of course, we want to teach them effectively in those early grades. But we know that there will be many, many students in the upper elementary grades and the high school grades who struggled to decode. Yeah. That exists in almost every class. And struggle with fluency and with comprehension. But if we look at the decoding, if you're an upper elementary, middle school, or high school right. teacher and your child is not decoding, I am a very strong advocate. And I'm not suggesting that the science or the history teacher teach them how to decode. Somebody needs to. Yeah. So if you have a 15 year old who is not decoding, we've done the assessment, we've gone back to our curriculum based measure, we've taken out the grade three assessment and or grade four. Or even earlier, and we see that they're not decoding. We have to teach them how to decode. It's the building right. block of reading. At no point should we say, I'm going to put all their material on automated text and I will right. provide that accommodation. Not against accommodations. Right. It's essential. But while we're accommodating using automated text, somebody has to teach that child how to decode, whether right. they go into the, you know, a resource room and get it there. But that is a critical, At no point should we say they're in grade nine. So we're going to accommodate and, no, you know, assume that they didn't learn how to read and therefore they're not able to now. So very, very important. It's a human yeah. right, no matter how old they are, somebody has to go as far back as necessary and mm-hmm. make sure that that child learns how to read. Such good advice. Yeah. At the same time, right. We may have students who are decoding, Right. But for various reasons, the fluency is, how they, is is where they're stuck. And then we have to do the same thing and, and work on that fluency. But the critical piece and that piece that I write about in the book is comprehension in the different content areas, mm-hmm. which I think is a, a significantly yeah. missing piece. In order to understand text at different levels, there are generic strategies. So there mm-hmm. are really good strategies that we can teach students across all content areas, like reciprocal teaching. Where, you know, we ask them to predict, we ask them to generate questions. Those are good generic strategies, but there are also strategies that are specific to different content areas. So, you know, when we say every teacher is a reading teacher, I have to advocate if my child, my student is not decoding or not reading fluently. And as that history or science or math teacher, I need to be teaching comprehension. Math is in large part a language.
0: Yeah. There's so much text in, in the math problems now, starting in right. really young grade levels, not just in
1: middle right. and high school. Yeah. Exactly. So if I'm a, a, an advanced math teacher I, or high history teacher, I mean, wh- I've seen lots of kids struggle in history because yeah. they don't understand text patterns. We have to teach them. They don't know what cause and effect means. They don't know right. what a cause is. Yes. History, that's essential. Math, Uh there's vocabulary that we absolutely must know. We shouldn't change the words. We have to Uh teach them what those critical words mean. So in every content area, if I'm a math teacher, there are specific strategies. And one is, you know, how do I look at the problem? I read it, I read it again, I read it, I create a visual image, I highlight certain words. There are specific Uh strategies that we need to, comprehension strategies that we need to be teaching as a math teacher my math students, as a history teacher, I need to think about text patterns and I need to teach them. How do I identify cause and effect? Like I said, what is the cause? What is the effect? How do I identify? What are the words that are going to tip me off? What I'd like to say, and I teach teachers this, imagine that the author of the text is sitting on your shoulder and you're saying to yourself, why did the author write this History, historical passage. What right. was the author trying to tell me? You know, was the author saying this happened because of this? Was the author saying there's a problem and here's the solution? Was the author saying I want you to understand a concept? Right. What was the author trying to tell me? So we've got to present it and then teach them how to identify text structures like cause and effect, so that we know what the author's message is. Yeah. The last quick thing I'll say is what we often think of as a comprehension strategy is not in fact the strategy. So answering questions Mm -hmm. is an assessment. It is not a strategy. In order for them to answer questions, we've got to teach them the how to the strategy.
0: Oh, that's such good advice. Thank you. Oh my goodness. So what final piece of advice do you have for teachers about teaching? Reading to students in grades K through
1: 12, right? And again, I've heard this in in yeah. many of your other podcasts. But be aware of the evidence. Mm-hmm. Find those books. There's lots of them. But be aware of the evidence. It isn't complicated. I know teachers say, but there are so many different ways to teach reading. In fact, there aren't. I mean, we the big five is essential. Yeah, I think that find those evidence based articles, materials, books that are mm-hmm. out there. And for the early grades, make sure that we are very sequentially, explicitly teaching the early skills, breaking a word into its phonemes, mapping the letter onto the sound, eventually reading fluently, constantly teaching vocabulary and comprehension from minute one. I read the text because you can't read at that level yet. but. For a five-year-old, we can review many comprehension strategies. So number one, be aware of the evidence that's out there Mm -hmm. and the strategies that need to be taught for those early readers and assess early, early, like I said, using those curriculum-based measures, nonsense words to make sure that every child is in fact decoding. And if they're not, we jump in early and we provide them with the intervention. As they move into the middle grades, if they have developed those early skills, we still need to focus on literacy. We have to make sure that they are reading with fluency, with comprehension, that they're connecting to what they're reading, that we're Mm -hmm. teaching them how to make their own connection so that we're using background knowledge. And that every teacher advocate that every kid become a proficient reader, no matter what the grade level. So if I see that a child in my grade 10 history class is struggling to decode, I'm going to be that child's advocate and say, somebody has to help. And the last piece is teaching comprehension Mm -hmm. at those higher grades across every content area. So that if I'm a math teacher, I see comprehension as a critical component to my instruction.
0: Oh, I like that phrasing that you see, that every teacher see comprehension as a component. That's really well said. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, that was great. And what about for parents? What can parents do to support their children at home with reading, regardless of the grade level?
1: So read a lot as Mm -hmm. adults read. Yeah. Which I'm going to say it. (laughs) We've got to spend less time on social media. Yeah. I just feel like it has to be out there. I know it's an addiction for a lot of us, but I think we have to be aware of it. I think we have to put it away Mm -hmm. for most of the time that young kids are awake and we have to read ourselves. We have to be models of reading. So young kids and older kids should see us reading books and we should be spending a lot of time reading with our Mm -hmm. kids pointing, and I heard again, you know, many of your other guests talk about print knowledge. Yes. What does the the cover tell us? What is that return sweep? Where do I start? What do I do when I get to the end of the line? Start making sense of those different individual particles or phonemes in a word. So bring attention to that. So we need to read and we need to spend a lot of time reading. And young kids Mm -hmm. love to be read too. Number one, they love the same book. They love that story. It's the experience that they really love. It's that special time that they're spending with their parent. Right. And language is so important. Mm -hmm. Language being spoken in the home. Just play language games. I spy. There's so many really good, rich language games. Yes. And children will learn the words that we teach them. So if we teach them sophisticated words, they'll learn sophisticated words. We have to teach them good, precise language and constantly build their language. So if they say the truck, we can say, yes, look at that big red, you know, and add descriptors to their sentences. So vocabulary is important as well.
0: Oh, those are such great tips. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your work with us. Where can listeners
1: find you? on social media, as I said, (laughs) to stay away from it. But it's, you know, it's Karen Gazid, my name. And I do have a website and it's KG Teaching Means Learning. So you can find it in actually all the email communication that we have. I'll link to that for sure. And you can, yeah, so you can link to that social media. So just sort of look me up And hopefully others will benefit from the book again, as, you know, as you said, you have already, which I greatly appreciate. It's really well
0: put together and so practical. You take very complex topics and concepts and make it very manageable, which is amazing.
1: And the book can be found on Solution Trees website Mm -hmm. and on Amazon.
0: Great. And I'll link to those as well. Thank you so much, Karen.
1: I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, that was a great conversation. Karen is truly a wealth of knowledge and information. And this book definitely addresses how we as teachers can support students with reading. And I love that this book addresses all grade levels from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. I really hope that you learned something from my conversation with Karen and can implement some of her strategies into your teaching. Check out her website and grab a copy of her book as well. I'll link to the book in the show notes. So we're headed into February and a leap year too. So I'll be back in two weeks with another conversation about reading and how we can bring the joy of reading into our classrooms and schools. It's another conversation that you won't want to miss. As always, happy reading. And that's it for this episode of The Literacy Teachers Life. Get in touch! I'm on Instagram at the Literacy Teachers Life. My email address is Elizabeth at the literacy com. Thank you so much for listening. Please tell a friend about this podcast. And of course, You can leave me a review on any podcast platform where you listen. I so appreciate it. I'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.